0: Hello, welcome to the McClifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner, the first podcast of 2023. I hope you've all got over to Christmas intact and are in proper fettle facing into this new year, which promises to be full one way or the other. Now, today we're going to look forward to what we can expect in what is already shaping up to be a pretty interesting 12 months ahead in politics. join me to read the runes is Irish Examiner, political editor and the current Journalist of the Year, Danny McConnell. Danny, how are you? Mick, good to talk to you. Happy New Year to you. Many happy returns. You made it over the Christmas, as we call it, Danny, yeah? (laughs)
1: <laughs> just about, just about. I'm, I'm not bankrupted just yet either.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's the other stuff. It's, it's, it's training for the sumo wrestling bout was the thing that got to me more than but I mean, that's Neither here nor there. As we move on to uh, fresher and fitter things, Danny. Politics. Look, there's no getting away this week from it. But uh, the trolley crisis in our hospitals and the killer, it would seem. And this is a theme that's out there. Not only can we expect this every winter, but there was particular warnings about it this winter. And at the same time, it seems to be, as I heard one consultant describe it, chaos. Yeah, and, and that theme of chaos has been sort of
1: seen all over the country. Like we're having anecdotal evidence of trouble in Waterford, in Cork, and Limerick, in Galway and in some of the hospitals in Dublin. And, you know, politically, the obviously the attention is on Stephen Donnelly, the health minister and his lack of preparedness, you know. And we hear these arguments every year from the opposition, you know, how do you not be prepared for this when you knew what's coming, all this sort of stuff. I have some sympathy to a certain degree for Stephen Donnelly because you're dealing with a decades-long underinvestment in our health service, chronic shortage of beds. You're dealing also with, you know, kind of a lack of supply when it comes to proper staffing levels and all that kind of stuff. And that's not anything that Stephen Donnelly was responsible for. He wasn't in office. But it, it is something that both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are responsible for because they've essentially held power in that in that particular uh, ministry since time immemorial. So, like, they do have to ship some blame in relation to the State of the Health Service. I think what you're seeing in terms of the response in the last couple of days from Stephen Donny is you're tinkering around the edges, like, you know, a small bit of money here for extra GP care hours. The fundamental difficulty is we need about 5,000 extra beds. We need, you know, how many more staff... And that's just not going to happen overnight. We have a growing population. We probably needed three or four extra hospitals, Mick, you know, to deal with the kind of the, the level of need and demand that's there. I mean, if you look at some of the horror stories that you're getting out of the hospitals, like and, and you've seen your clinicians telling us it's not safe to go near hospital, you wouldn't want to be getting sick, and you wouldn't want to be kind of have have an elderly relative getting sick at the moment. So, the, you know, the political fallout from this is likely to be. There's going to be a lot of noise around it. But, you know, uh, I just don't know whether or not the political dial will shift or turn that much and whether Stephen Donnelly actually manages to turn this failure into a success, which I don't think he will. But, you know, I think from a political accountability perspective, it's what he needs to do is just get through this without being completely and utterly monstered and live to tell the tale and try and make some progress throughout the year so we don't see this as bad next year. But again, you know, sure enough, no doubt in the first week of next year,
0: we'll be talking about a trolley crisis again. Yeah, one thing that arises, Danny, and this is a thing that's put out sometimes, and I haven't seen it suitably addressed, but I don't know whether there's a serious basis for it either. And that is the idea of money in black hole and health. Now, we saw during the week a report, uh, I think it's in the Irish Times, they had source documents, things under FOI. Robert Watt, uh, Secretary of the Department of Health, uh, a document, he, he, uh, I think an email or something, he... um. He wrote last September in which he said he had not seen any real change in terms of tackling waiting lists. I forget the specific phrase, but that was the gist of it, despite the injection of a significant amount of money. And this was a reference to a 350 million euro action plan that was announced earlier in the year. When people see something like that, and you know, this thing, in some sections I say it arises, is money the issue or is there something a lot more complicated than that at work here?
1: I think what what is clear is that we've had year after year of record investment in the health service, like record increases in terms of health investment and, and spend on the health service. So clearly money can't be the issue or can't be the only issue that's going on here. There is a fundamental lack of management and proper management within the HSC, And you see this tension existing all the time between the HSC, the Department of Health and the Department of Public Expenditure, you know, the money masters essentially. And you know, Robert Watt was essentially appointed into that job on a very, very big salary in order to try and knock heads together and you know, kind of clear the roadblocks. But clearly he himself is is, is hitting his head against the kind of the vast edifice that is the HSE bureaucracy and not getting proper answers. We also know Mick as well that like HSE is such a vast enterprise, it doesn't have a coordinated and coherent financial accounting system anyway. So actually trying to keep a track of where their money actually is going is incredibly difficult, even though they have had years in order to try and get their house in order. They still don't have their house in order. Um, so that that's a fundamental problem. And you know that the construct of the HSC, the makeup of the HSC. It's own history between, you know, talked about under Feeney Gale, they were going to wind it down and abolish the see then it was resurrected. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with a, an organization that probably has a bit of an, an identity crisis, doesn't really know what it should be doing or, or is supposed to be doing. Um, but ultimately, it's a mess. It's an absolute quagmire. There's no doubt about it. Um, but, you know, we tend to not get very good bang for our buck when it comes to healthcare in this country. Inflation tends to be very high in this country and also as well, there tends to be a huge amount of waste, particularly on the, on the current side. So there just doesn't seem to be either the willingness, the appetite or the ability to, to put some shape or
0: control on it. Just before I leave, one quick thing that struck me, and this is the thing I've always wondered about. And I, I heard one um, manager, one of the healthcare groups making this point that hospitals still are effectively run on a Monday to Friday basis. Now, Stephen Donnelly made suggestions about consultants being available the weekend and the Consultants Professional Association responded that yes, there was cover and cover was the word that was used in all the hospitals over the weekend. But I still can't understand why hospitals are not run on a seven-day basis. Like any uh, scenario like that. Newspapers, Danny, our one, you very frequently, and myself at the odd time, you work a Sunday. That's the nature of it. You see that in, in so many different nurses, quite obviously, in so many different walks of life. Yet we do not have a seven-day-a-week cycle in hospitals. And surely that is a major uh, stumbling block. It's the major stumbling block, Mick, and I saw it
1: firsthand. I was in recently enough for a kind of a follow-up procedure to an operation I had, and I was in the gastro unit in the Master Matter Hospital on a Friday evening, and then, you know, literally to my amazement, this brand spanking new department was being shut down at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock on a Friday evening and was not going to be reopened again until Monday morning. That's bonkers. Like, operating theatres should be running seven days a week. There's no doubt about it. Um, And, you know, these sort of units... which aren't necessarily accident and emergency cases. And see, the difficulty is that you have all these things being funneled through a particular weekend into accident and emergency because there's nowhere else for them to go. And that's putting a lot of the pressure on. And then on the far side of it, you have a lot of people who are in hospital, about 650 people at the moment, who shouldn't be in hospital at all. They're medically fit for discharge, but they've nowhere to go. So you have this perfect storm of the system not being open all week, which it should be, which is linked to the consultant contract, and obviously Stephen Donnelly's tried to bring forward a new consultant contract to try and um, and alleviate and have a proper seven day or even a six day a week kind of uh, system, um, and that hopefully will will free some of that logjam. Um, and then you also as I said, like you know, the management of patients in terms of the throughput and the output of of patients into step down facilities is nowhere near where, where it's nowhere near where it needs to be. Um, so you have these perennial problems that existed twenty years ago when I first started in national journalism, still exist today. And you know, we seem to have made very little progress in, in terms of dealing with those.
0: Yeah, it it reminds me. I have to say, back <laughs> I remember back where I'm from in Carisvine in the seventies when I was a kid, Thursday used to be the half day. So the town literally shut down on a Thursday afternoon commercially in every way because people had to work Saturday, which was quaint and lovely and what have you for the 1970s. But that with a scenario today in hospitals that they shut down the Friday evening, it's still beggars belief. Anyway, look, we just—we don't want to get bogged down there. Turning to the wider political firmament, Danny, Leo Varadkar back in the hot seat. Do you perceive that he'll approach the job or handle himself any way different this time around than he did previously? I think he has to,
1: make. Uh, I think you know the, the Leo record that takes office or has taken office in late 2022, now starting into 2023, is a very different animal than the one that took over in 2017. Mm. You know, he was the young book, you know, the story of his background, of his sexual identity and all that kind of stuff. You know, was a worldwide story. It wasn't just an Irish national story. It was a worldwide story, and it, it kind of pointed to a more tolerant, open Ireland. And it came in the wake of, you know, the marriage equality. It was it was a harbinger towards the Eighth Amendment. You know, the following year, but you know, the Leo of record that takes over now, um, you know, is you know, is a failed electoral winner. Like he hasn't won an election since since taking office. He's lost five by elections. He lost a general election, but yet still finds himself in office. You know, and had a very mediocre to to, to passable European and, and local elections in twenty nineteen. So his electoral record and, and the basis of his leadership campaign in terms of that he'd be this great winner for Fine Gael has proven not to be the case. So he's a far more like he the authority that he held over his party in twenty seventeen is not there, to say the least. Also in twenty seventeen, given the dynamic of the minority government that he led at that time. You know, Finnegan had 11 seats at the cabinet table. They had a huge number of junior ministers. They had a huge number of uh, committee chairmanship to hand out. So he had bought, he was able to buy his party off essentially with favours. He doesn't have that, he doesn't have the level of goodies to give out this time around. So he's a far more unhappy party behind him. You know, and a lot of this disquiet is coming from his former ministers, the people he had to demote or sack uh, um, uh, along the way. So so he's a bit more chastened, I would think. And obviously, given his own leaking uh, difficulties, which you know kind of hung over him as a shadow for about 18 months or so, I think that certainly did uh, clip his wings a little bit. So he's a, he's a bit more mature, and I think he himself has acknowledged this. He wants to be a bit more mature. I think he's learnt a few lessons from Michal Martin. And now, Michal Martin has um, steered the ship through COVID, you know, head of a three-way coalition the need for consensus, the idea of you know being a team player, which Leo Racker tends not to do very well at all. Um, so these are the things I think you're likely to see a bit more of. But there's a part of me that says you know the sneaking suspicion that I have is that you know the tribal aggressive Leo Veracchio who can't help but you know getting one up on on his opponents and in some of his closest friends, you know, will tend to come out at, at, at certain key points. So. It'll be very interesting to watch what sort of dynamic exists um at the top level of government in particular under Leo Veracker compared to how it did under under Micheál Martin.
0: Yeah, good point you make to to the extent I I got the impression from from afar that uh Martin had definitely the perception was he had definitely grown into the job and his approach to it was not combative despite obviously, you know, he he, he never would have been um got on very well with Mary Lou Macdonald for instance the, the leader of the opposition but you get the impression that Leo Varadkar could head down more that route and you'd have to ask is it wise? I mean if he gets into a sort of slagging matches with the people like Mary Lou Macdonald are people going to see that for what it is and, and perhaps perceive it as being a camouflage for not acting in terms of the meat and drink of the job as he's supposed to be doing?
1: Yeah there's two things there one I would certainly think Michael Martin often put the good of the coalition and the country ahead of his own naked party's interest or his own selfish interest. You know, that's that, that's what a question. Um, he's very cautious in how he did things. So, like, obviously a lot of people, myself included, grew very frustrated about the, the slow pace of reopening during COVID-19 because he always took the most cautious approach to it. You know what I mean? Um, and that drove particularly the Phoenix mad. Um, But I I think he he went a long way to try and make sure that the three parties stuck together on big issues, Like he handled the climate action thing very, very well. That could have been very divisive for the coalition, but he managed to keep Charlie McConnell and Eamon Ryan at the same table. He's managed to keep Charlie McConnell again uh, in, in situ, despite the Mikey difficulties. I mean, that's dragged on, delayed for almost a year. He's managed to keep government TDs on board in relation to that. Um, And I think he's shown, in other areas, like I think he's shown courage in relation to the North. I think he's shown himself to be somewhat sympathetic to the Unionist communities, much more so than, say, Leo Varadkar has done. Um, So I I think you could look at Micheal Martin's tenure and say, listen, he did a lot of things for the good of the country and and the good of the government, not necessarily for the good of his own party. Leo Varadkar, you know... um, so the second point to say, but Michal Martin himself also got himself into an awful lot of slang and matches with Mary Lou MacDonald. He wasn't afraid to kind of kick out of Sinn Féin. Leo Farrakhan, I think, will have no difficulty in kicking out of Sinn Féin. Like, there's a long track record, and we know there's been many instances of himself and Mary Lou uh, going head-to-head. Where I will be very keen to watch is just to see how he chairs cabinet, those cabinet subcommittees where a lot of the decisions get made, how they handle the migrant issue, which is very delicate and will be very complex. Because Leo, I get the sense that he's a bit more... Intemperate, he kind of will be maybe a bit more rash in his action and his decision making. He doesn't necessarily take time or the sufficient time to kind of tease something out, as, say, Michal Martin might do. But he, uh, um, so it'll be interesting to see how he deals with those particular challenges. But I do think that the, the noises out of his office and his his side so far are it'll be a kind of a more over overracker, a more less hasty, less rashly overracker we'll see in government this time rather than, than the, the kind of young book we saw in 2017.
0: What's the significance of him moving the the responsibility for the children portfolio into his department?
1: Well, a cynic might say he's trying to move that in to kind of take the glory or the good news from Roger Gorman when in terms of the, the reduction in childcare fees will kick in in the new year and also as well that um, that there's likely to be more further good news in that space in terms of resources down the line and it's a way of, of making sure that he has ownership of, of that issue. Um, I I think the more sympathetic or more benign interpretation is that he's clearly identified this is an issue that he cares about or an issue that he sees that he can deliver on and and, and, and respond back. And I think also, well, there's no doubt about it. there's no doubt this Fine Gael polling that has said that they need to project a more caring image, for particularly for the people who are up early in the morning, as he talks about the hardworking family who are out and need a break, the squeeze middle, as as they're often referred to. So I presume it, it, it's a move backed by polling or market research in some shape or form. But it's one, I think, where he has probably identified that, listen, after this two and a half year, Scientific does go the full term, that they'll be able to point to some actual delivery and, and, and some progress on that point.
0: No, you mentioned climate action plan and uh, that uh, there, there obviously was some contraps there between the likes of Eamon Ryan and Charlie McConlogue, Minister for Agriculture. But this year, presumably, the rubber will have to hit the road in terms of putting it into action. And... Is, is could there be turbulent times ahead when you're doing that because there's going to be no matter what way you look at it sections of society are going to be discommoded with this kind of transformation I think
1: undoubtedly there, there will be turbulence and you know what I mean setting targets is one thing implementing them as something else altogether and I think you know, some of the targets that they've set are, are are very, very ambitious. Now we need to obviously get down to that fifty percent by twenty thirty and zero by twenty fifty. So the targets that they have set, and, and obviously some sectors are, are you know have much higher targets than others. Obviously the battle in agriculture, you know, the Greens wanted a thirty percent reduction, feet of wanted a twenty-two percent reduction, they've they've kind of kind of split the difference almost at twenty-five percent. But you're looking at energy transport, much higher targets, and you're just wondering you know, we we don't do delivery well in this country. We tend, you know, projects tend to go and they run over budget, run over time, and we tend to not deliver on what we need to do. So I I think those targets are likely to be missed. Um, but I think and what I'm not seeing is the structures being established within government, uh, other than Pascal who getting a new name in his department, to ensure that you know the kind of the big set piece national development plan delivery stuff, um, will actually happen on time. Now. That that, that added kind of strength to Pascal Dunne, whose bow has only just happened. So we need to give it a bit of time in terms of, you know, NDP delivery. But, you know, like we generally don't have a good track record on the environment. We generally don't have a good track record on delivering big projects. So uh, I'd certainly be looking at it with a sceptical eye rather than than a positive one.
0: And are we likely to have a scenario, Danny, whereby there is pushback in various sectors like, you know, farmers' organisations and what have you, when there are attempts to actually implement aspects of it?
1: Undoubtedly, and again, it'll come down to you know, and ultimately, it'll come down to some sort of arbitrary, you know, algorithm, you know, calculation in, in a department that you know, X amount of money will need to be put on cars, or X amount of money will have to be put on on journeys, or you know, a, you know, in in other areas, that there'll, there'll be a hike in prices elsewhere, and this is on top of the sort of carbon tax prices that we already are you know are are, are kind of bedded in and factored in already, you know, to happen again this year. Um, so I just think there is undoubtedly potential for difficulty. And what you've seen, particularly in the last year or so, Mick, is a ramping up of this rhetoric from rural independent TDs, the likes of the Healy Rays and the Matty McGraths and elsewhere, and others, you know, saying all of this is an attack on rural Ireland. All of this is kind of, you know, the Dublin metropolitan set, you know, trying to impose the destruction of rural Ireland in order to kind of appease Eamon Ryan. I think that rhetoric is only likely to increase when, you know, like you say, the rubber needs to hit the road.
0: Yeah, it will be very interesting, and and it's a real one, Whereby uh, the government are going to have to take action and the opposition can sit back and view it from the high ground, but we'll be, have to see how that goes. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at Irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. The even bigger issue, of course, is housing. Now, with the Housing for All plan and that has been trundling along, I think what is noticeable and what seems to be coming true is that commencements were down in the last quarter of 2022. That, I'd suggest, Danny, could have big implications because if the building of houses, specific houses, doesn't commence in the next I don't know, six to nine months, then they won't be coming on stream for renting or buying ahead of the next election in all likelihood. And ultimately, that's going to be the test for the government. I think housing,
1: much more so than health, will be the test for this government and their ability to, to, to show delivery and a change. And that, that change will only manifest itself in lower rents and lower asking prices, for, for particularly for first-time buyers. I think we're miles off getting to that position. And I think, you know, even the targets set under Housing for All, by the government's own admission, are not enough to meet the demand that's there. Like you know, they're talking about thirty-three, thirty-five thousand a year. In, in earnest, we probably should be you know, We should be building above forty thousand, certainly for the next couple of years, in order to try and and meet that demand. So we're way off the pace. And what you're seeing is like you know, yes, the government have brought forward new planning laws. They're they're going to have to bet in, but you know, difficulties with Abort planola. You know, the delays in all of that constant objection to, plan, you know, to planning for, for big housing developments, all this sort of stuff. Um, the process itself has become overly bureaucratic and slow. And again, the government itself has has, has held its hands up in, in relation to all of this. So what you're seeing, again, is very ambitious targets being set, but a huge question mark over the, the ability to deliver. And what you're seeing also as well is, and this is eight years into, or eight or nine years now, into what was described by the then housing minister, Alan Kelly, as a housing crisis an inability of local authorities to build houses. We're still relying way too much on the private sector, turnkeys, all that kind of stuff. And what we're not seeing across the country is a viable system of house building, direct house building by local authorities. And that to me is mind boggling, as I said, nine years on from from when this was first declared an emergency.
0: Yeah, the other big thing though, I think, is that the volume of um, apartments in terms of the overall uh, housing stock has grown exponentially. And there's definitely an issue in terms of developments for which planning permission has been attained, and it's one of two things, and that depends entirely on who you're talking to which it is, either that's being used by uh, people who get the planning permission to increase the value of the site and um, sell it on on the base the planning permission is there and make money in that, or... An awful lot of developers will tell you, and not just developers, actually speaking to other people in the the business, that there is a huge problem of viability in terms of building these apartments. Like we have a scenario now where there's, I think, about 44,000 housing units, mainly apartments that there is planning permission for and there's no sign of them starting. And it's difficult to see how the government are going to be able to address that.
1: It's really difficult. It's really
0: difficult because again,
1: like the housing minister himself can't build houses, like he can't turn around and actually dig the ground himself. So he's relying on the system essentially to play its part. The viability issue is one, but I also think as well, there's a more fundamental argument that needs to be had in terms of our urban spaces. Like you go through Dublin, Cork, Galway, huge vacant units all over in every city. And like it's criminal, again, in my view, that they're still not utilized as, as of now. You know, local authorities are still Fiddling, fiddling around with void units, like, and you see, even not too far from O'Connell Street, places like Dominic Street and elsewhere, you know, local authority housings um, with boarded up units that have been boarded up for years. Again, no excuse for that. Look, like, I mean, if if this really is an emergency, these should have been turned over far far quicker. You see, lots and lots of abandoned state buildings all over the country. They're in the care of the OPW. Again, could either be used to house refugees, you know, given our current crisis, or could have been converted in some shape or form for either communal living or some form of community living, you know, for people across the country. Again, lack of imagination, lack of em- lack of whatever enterprise or, or um, initiative in- to, to to allow that happen. So you are dealing with all of these issues and a failure to address. Like there are ninety thousand vacant units officially in the country at the moment. So like, there is plenty of units there for people to be housed in. They're just not getting utilized, and they're not getting used for some reason. We also know there's a huge number of holiday homes that could have been used for for the refugee crisis, but have proven themselves either to be unworkable or unviable. So there are question marks both in terms of the, the homelessness issue, but in terms of actually the building of sustainable, and particularly first time buyer homes. You know, your your three beds semi detached or your three bed apartments. You know, people don't really want to be living long term in one bed two bed apartments because they're not they're not suitable for families. And the other thing as well, I think, and one of the great crimes of the Caltech Tiger area was there wasn't a proper legal framework for how these apartment blocks would be would be run and managed because I know far too many examples of friends having to kind of on an ad hoc basis set up management companies in order to kind of make things run because the set up, the legal framework essentially wasn't there and, and development companies were allowed to kind of toddle off you know risk-free and, and without any sort of uh, uh, kickback so and, and you've written quite extensively Mick in terms of the failures and the failure and kind of fire standards and building standards and all the rest of it and a lot of these buildings, buildings as well. So, you know, we're not coming from a very good space in relation to this in the first place. But also as well, we're not coming from, we're not anywhere near at the races at all in terms of the delivery because families essentially want houses. They want houses with gardens and they, or they want you know access to decent green spaces. And We just don't see the development of those in a coherent or strategic manner, in my view, sufficiently enough on scale in order to address the crisis. And as long as that happens, we're going to see young people leave the country or we're going to see the prices continue to go the way they're going.
0: Yeah. I think you're spot on there particularly in terms of the vacant units and particularly in terms of imagination being applied there because I know for instance you know culturally particularly in bigger towns you you, you would have had traditional less last 30-40 years people want to live outside the town now there should be attempts to bring them back in and the other issue I think in that respect is building standards with, particularly with the likes of fire safety stuff that would have been passed grand 30-40 years ago and they were in use now falling short of new standards but Back again to your point, imagination. You have to put something in place there to make these places habitable because it'll improve it'll improve the housing stock. It'll also improve the towns. It'll bring life back to them. All of that. And that is not being done. That seems to be falling somewhere between the department and the local authorities.
1: And there clearly isn't a good working relationship between the Department of Housing and the local authorities. There seems yeah. to be a very dysfunctional relationship there. So it's mind-boggling that something as what should be Relatively straightforward and simple and building houses has seems to become this great com- complex yeah, issue. Like. Yeah.
0: No, just on the housing issue, back to the politics of it, Danny. Uh Darrow Bryan, he, he he's held on to the job there. He is a politician who I think would be fair to say is not short of self-confidence. And you'd have to wonder, um, is there anything in it that he might be viewing his performance, and if he's seen to have performed well, notwithstanding whether or not he, he solves it, I don't think anyone's going to solve it, but whether he makes any inroads, would he be viewing this as a launching pad to uh, taking over whenever uh, the great leader steps down? He certainly has ambitions
1: to be leader, and there's no doubt about it, and there's a strong belief among some of his supporters that the next leader of Fianna Fáil needs to come from Dublin. And obviously there's been a huge amount of attention on Jim O'Callaghan up, up until this point. Um, but you know, you're now looking... Darrell Bryan certainly has ambitions. I just don't know if the support base within Fianna Fáil is there for him to mount a, an effective leadership campaign. Um, I think he would be looking to get out of housing no more than, say, Steve Donnelly looking to get out of health relatively unscathed, no fatal blows. Like, he's already survived a motion of no confidence in the Dáil. Um But I, I just think, like... He's managed to turn around and say, "Listen, Dara, get this sort of Dara, get it done." Kind of uh, impression that Oliver Callan often mimics him <laughs> with, but um, but that sort of bluff and bluster will only get you so far. I mean, delivery will be the key. And if if you know, housing fraud is the thing that he's he's pinned his hopes and pinned his aspirations on. So that's the, the the metric and the mechanism by which his plan will fo- will fail or succeed. Um, but delivery will be the key. So you know, he needs to be able to show to show any sort of kind of success. That you know, rents have moderated. That house prices have moderated, and you know, people who are looking to buy a house can get a house, um, and they're not having to live on their, their parents' sofas anymore, or their friend's sofas, or or still live at home in their thirties. that'll be the, the that'll be the metric of Dara Ryan's success or failure come the next
0: election. And having mentioned the leader of Fianna Fail, Michal Martin, now he enjoys the. I'd suggest he'd probably enjoy and and he'd like to contribute in the Department of Foreign Affairs. So I, I'm guessing all things. No, no shocks in store. He'd probably be there in twelve months. But do you see him stepping down ahead of the next general election as leader?
1: I certainly see a scenario where I think Michel Martin would be in the mix for the European Commissioner job in twenty twenty four. As we wrote about a year ago, now at this stage, yeah, um, like the chances of him realistically of him uh, staying and challenging for the next general election are are, are low enough. However, the one thing I will say. You know, and having interviewed Charlie McConnell over Christmas, you know, and he very much backed Mihal Martin to stay and wanted him to stay, and and not only until the end of term, but but into the next election. You know, Michael Martin's position is as strong as it's ever been since he's taken over the leadership of Fianna Fáil, um, and you know there really isn't an obvious candidate to replace him. I know people talk about Michael McGrath, people talk about Dara O'Brien or Jim O'Callaghan or whatever, but like none of them have made sufficient moves or placed themselves to make them, like, clearly the heir apparent. So, you know, and Michal Martin has shown no appetite to kind of oust himself or kind of fall on his own sword. The attraction of going to Europe in 2024 means that it gives whatever successor comes after him enough time to bet in ahead of the next general election. It avoids a divisive bloodbath within the party and, you know, the factions that have, you know, obviously dominated Fianna Fáil's history under Hathi and others. Um, and it would certainly allow, if he was even to signal that that's his intention, it would allow a, a kind of a, a kind of a credible but civilized debate to happen within Fianna Fall over the next leader without it becoming descending it into kind of a, a civil war. So I see the attraction of a European job for Hall Martin, be it in the Commission uh, or you know people have linked him with you know, possible presidents of the EU Council. You know after after that point, um, you know. The, he would go in as a top tier, having been a former prime minister and a former minister for foreign affairs. He goes in at the top tier, you know what I mean. So he would go in at a, at a, at a pretty decent level. And for him, he's sixty two now, so I mean, it was not a, not be a bad way for him to sort of you know end his end his career uh, on a high, rather than maybe heading into the next generation and, and facing a very brutal day at the, at the at the ballot box. You know, there's a way to finish your career on a high, and there's a way to finish your career on a low. And I just think the temptation to finish on a high may may just win out.
0: Yeah, I could well see that. I, I, I'd I, agree with you. I I still can't envisage him leading the party into the next election. Equally though, unlike perhaps at other times, I can't see any obvious candidate or anybody who would uh, inspire the masses if that's inspiring the masses is still the level that Fianna Fáil are at. But that's, an, that's a matter for another day. Danny, from moving from there on for one other element to things in terms of the coming 12 months, Sinn Féin, main opposition party. I mean... As long as things continue to chug on in terms of the housing and health in particular and the big problems that are in both of them, is this just mana for Sinn Féin? Is it likely that their popularity will continue to increase over the 12 months? They're currently at about low mid-30s. Some people suggest they could go up as far as 40%. Yeah, I
1: think what was very interesting about last year was that you know Sinn Féin set the narrative from day one in terms of the cost of living government was responding to the Sinn Féin narrative on the cost of living for up until the budget day. It was only on budget day where the government out Sinn Féined, Sinn Féin if you know what I mean, in terms of the scale of the budget package that they brought forward and, you know, in terms of the, like, Pierce Darty really had no answer to, to the package that was brought forward by Michael McGrath and, and Pascal Donoghue. The party Sinn Féin have also suffered, I think, negative connotations in relation to the Dowdle trial and the Regency trial that, that has, has has gone through the course in recently and that constant association real or just merely perceived in terms of criminality and all that kind of stuff, has definitely done the party some damage and has allowed, I think, its opponents highlight its its past links with, you know, the terrorists, you know, the IRA, and also its links at times with darker characters um, in the underworld. So I think Mary Lou MacDonald has to, you know, I think that trial can't come to a conclusion soon enough for Mary Lou MacDonald because they would want that association done away with as quickly as possible. I think, you know... Um, you know, I think they also took a bit of a hit in relation to... They had obviously called for an energy price cap uh, before Christmas as well. Uh, you know, a policy that was brought in and was ultimately the bringing down of Liz Truss in the UK. So they did suffer a bit of a backlash in relation to their economic credibility in relation to that. However, they still are the greatest agents for change on offer to the Irish people in terms of the next coalition. Fianna Gael have been in, offer, in office since 2011. Fianna Fáil have been in office since 2020. But obviously we had confidence and supply before that. So... Sinn Féin are those agents for change who can genuinely lead the next government. So I think that appetite amongst people who would have previously voted Free and fall or Fianna the Gael, they're saying, no, it's time to give Mary Lou and her, her gang uh, a shot. I think that is going to be very hard to dissuade against, and that's going to be very hard to fight against in the next year. However, I think if the government can try and limit Sinn Féin's firepower in relation to the cost of living, health and housing... Then they will nullify those arguments to a certain degree, and they will certainly kind of, I think, stop the march of Sinn Féin and maybe eat back into that that level of, of support. You also have to think: might make we're kind of midterm now of, of the electoral cycle. We're heading into kind of the the, the season of local and European elections in twenty twenty four. You know, we're going to start seeing the, the the holding of election you know selection conventions and all that kind of. stuff. so the ramping up of preparedness ahead of those local and European elections. And that might just see Sinn Féin coming under a greater level of scrutiny that they haven't been under to date, and people might might see that listen actually they talk a good game, but you know they really don't have an awful lot uh, to to offer in certain areas.
0: Yeah, I, I, well, no, I have to say this thing, and I, I've heard it since for the last two or three years people talking that at various stages Sinn Féin will come under more scrutiny. Bar as you mentioned, and it it, it was totally beyond their control and nothing to do whatsoever with the the party figures. um, in politics, and and that's, as you mentioned, the Regency trial, but it's coming under scrutiny, I don't know how much more scrutiny they can come under, but that that will be interesting. One thing, Danny, that people do suggest even this far out, and and that is that l- people are saying that largely the next election will be about Sinn Féin either having to go in with, most likely, Fianna Fáil, as one of the other two big parties, or go in without Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. People are suggesting that we're on a trajectory that, that that's going to be what the election about is about. Do you think it's too early for that?
1: No, I don't. I think it's actually spot on because like the last election came down to the fact that two of the three medium-sized parties, as they turned out to be, Fine Gael, Sinn Féin and Fianna Gael, had to coalesce together to form a government with the Green Party. I definitely think we're into the, we'll be in the same space. Two of those three groupings will have to coalesce next time round to form a government.
0: Our Sinn Féin managed to... Uh, the idea of Sinn Féin going in without Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, do you think that isn't done?
1: It's not, I just don't see it as viable. I just don't see right. how, like, I just don't see how you cobble together a government between Sinn Féin, a very small Labour Party, a very small Social Democrat Party. Then you're into the people for profit guys who have shown no appetite whatsoever at any point about you know or desire to go into government. You know they they would they wouldn't last a day in government given the, the you know the kind of the sort of policies that they've pursued. So very quickly, when you actually look at it. A Sinn Féin government without either Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil looks very, very unstable. It looks very, looks unworkable or unviable. So that's like my, my thesis is you will have to see two of those three bigger parties or medium sized parties coalesce to form the bedrock of the next government. Now, the Greens could be the tag on or the Social Democrats or the Labour or whoever could end up being, you know, the the third wheel. Um, but I just still, still think based on the numbers the way they are now, unless there's a seismic change in the numbers, you know, that that reality will just have to be be replicated next time out.
0: Finally Danny put you on the spot it's a kind of the, the the sporting question any politician you'd suggest keep an eye out for in the coming year.
1: Yeah my my she was close on being my politician of 2022 but I certainly she's my one to watch for 2023 is Rose Conway Walsh of Sinn Fein. Um <clears throat> she has i think proven herself to be quite, you know, economically literate. She, she's studying economics in, in Trinity College. She's doing a master's there. I think she's she has become a bit of a counterbalance to Pierce Doherty in in Sinn Fein in terms of their economic policies, um, and she's well got across the floor of the house. You know what I mean? So she's one to possibly watch on the government side. Um, I think you've got to look at someone like Jennifer Carr McNeil, who's now just been promoted to the Junior Finance Ministry. Uh, I think she has shown herself to be quite, in uh, addition to to Leinster House, since she started. Um, and uh, the only other person I would say to look out for is Holly Kern in the Social Democrats because again she has proven herself from being uh, from, very, from a very conservative constituency one of the leading liberal lights in the Dáil, uh this term and she has certainly proven herself to be quite effective in that role so she, they're the three who I'd pick out to, to watch this year All Women
0: All Women very good sign of the Times and Danny, very good talking to you again and listen, thanks once more for giving us that rundown on what to expect in the year ahead. Irish Examiner, political letter, Danny McConnell, thanks for talking to us today. Thanks a Mick. i also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, as always. Thank you folks for listening. Keep the head down. Uh, stay well through the dog days of January and sure, we'll talk to you again next week.